Hi, I'm Nicole Stoddard, the founding artistic director of Thinking Cap Theater and the host of the Future is Fornes podcast series, an ongoing deep dive conversation with Fornes mentees, practitioners, and scholars about the life and legacy of Maria Irene Fornes. In today's episode, I talk with Stevie Walker Webb, an Obie Award-winning director and playwright, lecturer at NYU Tisch School of the Arts, and professor and artist-in-residence at Harvard University, where he's teaching a series of courses about decolonizing the creative process. Elisa, when you hear Fornes's name, what instantly comes to mind? I think I, I, I think I immediately conjure her physically. Um, I had the good fortune of knowing Irene, and in the 80s, I was miraculously welcomed to participate in her playwriting workshop at Intar. Um, you know, and I remember, I, I remember her saying to me, "Ever, I, I said to her, really, I can come. You know, I'm, I'm not Hispanic." And she said, oh, that's okay. We just call you Alisa Salomon. <laughs> um, you know, I it, it, it was just a revelatory experience and, and a, a very open and creative one for me, probably not least because I had no intentions of or desires to become a playwright. So nothing was at stake for me. I was really there just to learn and observe. And um, man, I look at those notebooks now. I don't even know who wrote that stuff, you know, <laughs> because what she was able to do was to get writers to just tap into these these deep wells of unconscious material. And um, yeah, it's definitely there, you know, all written by hand in a notebook. So when I think of her, I think what first comes to mind for me, even more than her plays, which of course are the heart of it, um, is Irene in black sweatpants and a sweatshirt sitting in a circle with, with all of us, leading us in sort of yoga stretching exercises and then guiding us all to sit at the table um, and hearing her cheerful, sing-songy, still slightly accented voice of hers um, giving us prompts. Yeah, that's brilliant. I love that. I had no idea, but that's that's an awesome entry to, I think, her work. And especially since people that might know you might only think of you in an academic or a literary kind of background. So that's really cool. Okay, since the focus of our episode today is you writing about both Fornaz and Sontag, I have to ask you next, when you hear Sontag's name, what instantly comes to mind? Yeah, so almost the opposite. <laughs> I mean, partially because I, I I met Sontag a few times and I, I interviewed her at length once um, in the late '80s, but I um, I didn't know her personally, and you know there was a real austerity about her and a an, an giant intimidation factor about her. What do I think of when I think of her? Of course, I think of of her um, swatch of white hair. Um, in that thick black mane of hers, I think, you know, and I, I think of her just imposing presence, um, both in physical terms and as a as a brilliant um, critic and person of letters whose writing was really dominant for young wannabe female critics like me in that period. 
Wow, that's great. So you are part of a special group of people that actually had the pleasure of at least meeting, if not knowing both of these women. I, I mean, I can't say that I knew Sontag. I, you know, I, like I said, I interviewed her once um, up at uh, the ART in Cambridge when when the um, Beckett estate was trying to shut down Joanne Acolytus's production of Endgame. Sontag was there directing a play, Jake Weeds and his master, I think. And so I went to do a, a piece about the Beckett thing and I interviewed Sontag about it. Sontag completely defended the production. Uh, in fact, I think I, I called the piece I wrote for interpretation. <laughs> yeah, she completely defended the production. And um, for some reason, she's, you know, some people have written in places saying that she objected to it. That's completely false. She supported Joanne's production very much. Um, in any case, I met her that one time. I don't think if she ran into me, you know, two hours later, she would have recognized <laughs> me, much less, you know, two weeks or two months or two years later. So I can't say that I knew her. Um, I, Irene, I did know, much to my delight and benefit and pleasure and enrichment. Right. So that's interesting. So for anyone listening that's not familiar, Sontag wrote a collection of essays that was called? Oh, uh, Against Interpretation. So the title of your essay is is quite apropos and ironic. But I love that you mentioned that anecdote because Sontag some people only knew her for one facet of her identity as a writer and an artist in her own right, you know, um, and the fact that she was directing plays, directing films, writing screenplays, writing essays, writing novels, you know, that's something for me starting to, you know, dive deeper into to Sontag's body of work that really has astonished me. Yeah, she really wanted to be recognized as an artist more than as a critic. She, you know, she wanted to be thought of as a great novelist. And as you said, you know, she made films, she even wrote a play, she adapted an Ibsen play around the same time Irene was working on Ibsen, um, even though it was many years after their relationship was over. Um, but yeah, she she really thought of herself as a creative artist and wanted more than anything to be recognized as such. It's interesting you mentioned Ibsen because obviously, yeah, Fornes had a real lifelong fascination with him and particularly with the play Had a Gabbler and she wrote a play about Ibsen. And so it seems like even though their relationship took place early in their lives, right? Late 20s, early 30s, some of the experiences they had, some of the things they were reading or seeing left a mark on both of them so that there's this kind of um, entanglement between them that reverberates throughout their lives. I think I, I think I use the word confluence, um, you know, similar to the idea you just expressed that it's not, you know, I wouldn't call it influence uh, exactly. It's not, you know, one um, having an effect on the other, but a kind of interplay uh, meeting of minds um, and a space where they were both thinking about the same kinds of questions um, inspired by many of the same events and artists and certainly by their conversations and things that they presumably went to together, saw together uh, and and so on. So what you just mentioned, right, um, you and I both recently contributed essays to a forthcoming essay collection on the life and work of Fornes. Um, this collection is part of the Literature and Context series um, published by Cambridge University Press. The series aims to gather lively, accessible essays by leading scholars on a single author. And so for this particular project, you and I 
faced the challenge of addressing aspects of Fornes's private life and her sexual identity, obviously, is part of that. And so you were tasked specifically with exploring Fornes's relationship with Susan Sontag. What what did you think when you were asked to do this? What what came to your mind then? Were you like, oh, this will be a piece of cake? <laughs> I never think it's going to be a piece of cake when I agree to write anything. <laughs> My immediate response was, hot damn, what a great topic, followed instantly by... Oh no, <laughs> you know, how am I going to do this? Uh, can I do this? Am I capable of doing this? Will I do this right? You know, all of the, all of the anxiety, um, honestly, always comes with me around any writing project. But I think even especially for this, for a bunch of reasons, one, because I, I just, um, loved Irene so much and admired her so much. And I wouldn't want to write, you know, a syllable about her that was in any way, you know, wrong, um, much less, you know, gossipy. I mean, I think that was my fear. I don't want to write something that's gossipy. I wanted to write about their work, about the relationship between their work. And, you know, I think, as you know, Nicole, they they were together from uh, for about four years, 1959 to 63. Um, So really on the precipice of their launch, each one's launch um, into her career as a writer and and so the works that we know them for uh were not produced so much with some exceptions we'll probably get into in each other's company but nonetheless just as we were saying before there's there's something about what streams through their careers over time that just kind of they go they go their own ways but they just keep some of their interests just keep flowing back together And so that's what I, of course, I wanted to read about and know about all the, uh, you know, uh, gory detail um, that's in the Sontag diaries. But really, I wanted to try to write about their work. And it was a lot to do in a short space. And then, of course, you know, what else was I intimidated about? I felt like, oh, God, I now have to read every single thing Susan Sontag ever wrote and everything ever written about her. And, you know, you know, that's voluminous uh, and takes a lifetime. So, you know, I a, a lot of clashing thoughts went through my head. But I also was excited to think about the early part of Irene's career um, and to imagine her as a young writer uh, in this circle of uh, bohemians that she really brought Sontag into. Intimi- what, what did I think at first? Excitement, intimidation, thrill, um, anxiety, you know. Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with you, too, about this idea of not wanting to feel like you were writing something gossipy, that you were writing something that was grounded in in something real and authentic and true and something that they would not be turning over in their graves <laughs> if they could if they could read it themselves, right? And I think for me, I, I was very interested in, you know, what this means for us in terms of looking back to these these queer ancestors and queer history and what we're yearning for when we look we look back to these two women and the the early stages of their their relationship. I also felt like my life was really dull by comparison. <laughs> But, yeah, <laughs> when I heard, I was like, I have not lived. <laughs> yeah, I know. I don't go back to the 1950s uh, and early 1960s and really live. 
Yeah. Why didn't we go to Paris when we were 25? I mean, <laughs> seriously, I was I was amazed. I still am amazed. So tell tell listeners a little bit about your research for this particular essay. Like, did you did you do archival research? Did you head out to Sontag's, you know, some of the archives at UCLA? Did you head to NYU or did you focus on their actual writing and not feel that it was necessary. No, I, I didn't go to the archive in LA. It was during I was you know working on this during the COVID lockdown. Well, the archive was closed for a long time, and then you know travel wasn't a good idea. But one of our editors, Brian Herrera, was taking a trip to that archive, so I gave him a shopping list, um, and he very generously and kindly looked at some materials. It turned out that there was very little there in the archive about the period in question that isn't in Sontag's published diary. Um, I did go to Irene's papers at Fales at NYU. Um, and that's, uh, I also looked at what New York Public Library of the Performing Arts has in its Fornes files, which is mo mostly um, script drafts and review clippings and things like that. Part of the challenge uh, among several writing this piece is that almost everything we know about their relationship is from Sontag's point of view because we have her diaries. If Irene kept a diary, from this period that wasn't destroyed, God only knows where it is. You know, if it's in a box in an archive somewhere, someday it may surface. But there, there's nothing available now where she recounts any of that. Although I did find one notebook where um, she talks a little bit about her relationship with Susan, but she does it sort of in a in a fictional voice. So I had that. <laughs> but otherwise, I was pretty much focusing on their work. And also some interviews. Santiago gave a lot of interviews in the early 60s when her first novel came out. And then, of course, there have been a million interviews with Irene as well. So I, th I think Irene was a very private person in a lot of ways. I don't think she was worried about being exposed as a lesbian. I, you know, She publicly stated that she was a lesbian on many occasions. Um, a couple of which I organized, <laughs> uh, and I invited her. I, I, I organized some panels, one at the Center for Lesbian and Gay Studies in um, 1993, um, uh, an evening of lesbian literature. She was on um, that panel. Um, there's a actually a recording of it on YouTube that's pretty fascinating. Um, I'll come back to that in a second. And then I was a co-organizer of a queer theater conference a few years later, mid-90s, and she was on a playwriting panel um, there. And she like she had no um, problem publicly appearing on these panels um, and saying who she was, but she didn't want her, you know, not any more than she would deny being Cuban, but she didn't want to be a Cuban playwright. She, you know, she didn't want to be a lesbian playwright and she didn't think that her personal life was anybody's business. I think that's different from Sontag, who really was in the closet. Sontag would not, if, if if I had issued the same inter, you know, invitation in 1993 to Sontag to be on a panel called An Evening of Lesbian Literature, um, I don't know that she even would have answered. You know? <laughs> um, and if she had, I don't think she would have accepted. That's a really, I think, good and important distinction to make, right? Because Sontag into her 60s was still being interviewed and taking great issue with anyone who tried to pin her down to an identity, including a, a bisexual identity. I mean, there was... Yeah, yeah. Well, well, finally in that New Yorker piece, that finally sort of, she's sort of finally, you know, said, oh, I've had male lovers and female lovers. When was that? No sooner than the late 80s. I mean, as as you know, 
Nicole as well from reading Sontag's diary. She she was just filled with self-loathing about her queerness. She really had absorbed somewhere, <laughs> we can guess where, like the entire Western culture. Um <laughs> The, you know, the the homophobia of it, and she really struggles with it as a young person. She, you know, sort of admits it, and I use I use that word admits to herself on purpose because she's reluctant about it. But she, you know, admits to herself as a teenager that she has homosexual desires and she has an affair in her with a woman when she's a teenager, um, and the desire doesn't go away, and it troubles her a lot. And so I think that to the extent that she wasn't public about it, at least as a young person, at least before her career got going, let's say, it was, you know, partially about um, poss- about social pressure, um, what it might mean for her professionally and so on. But honestly, I think it was just really more to do with her own inner struggle and bad feeling about it. Yeah. And, you know, so I wonder for a new generation of queer women, LGBTQ people generally, right, if there is going to be a new sort of perspective on Sontag that comes out of these diaries, right? Because for so long, queer women who were her peers <laughs> had no access to these private thoughts, could not know the self-loathing that she was experiencing, could not know the anguish that she expresses in these, these diaries dating back to age 15, right? Mm-hmm. So they're, the perspective, at least in my own experience, I mean, I'm here in Fort Lauderdale, close to Wilton Manors, in an area that is very um, heavily populated with LGBTQ people. I am one of them. And we, you know, we have a lot of intergenerational conversations and I witness and I participate in conversations where there is a lot um, conflicting views of of Sontag, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wonder if, you know, the scholarship that we're doing and, you know, more people knowing that these diaries have been published and exist because they've only really, it's only been a decade or so that they've been available, right? If that's going to change how she's perceived if things will soften hard to say i mean i think it's the nature i hope i'm not saying something terribly ageist but i definitely put myself in this category during my years i think it's the nature of uh young people feeling their oats to be um a little more hardline about things <laughs> you know? um and then we soften a little. Um, So I think that's part of it. I mean, for myself, you know, being queer myself, being in the, you know, generation right after Sontag would have meant something to me if she had been out of the closet. Honestly, you know, honestly, I don't know. I'm sorry that she wasn't, Um, you know, for her sake, as well as anyone else's. But at the end of the day, I wonder if it really, would it really have mattered that much? I do think that by the 80s, you know, by the time she was writing about AIDS, her reputation was extremely solid. (laughs) Her, you know, career was not in any kind of question. I don't know why she hung on to the closet then for her, you know, during the height of the AIDS epidemic, that miserable, horrible, painful, terrible, atrocious time. 
for her to use we, you know, when talking about the queer community and the losses we were suffering and, you know, how the memorial service was the, you know, primary genre downtown for a long time. I mean, that I think would have been meaningful and I don't really know why she didn't do it. Yeah. I mean, I think it just reinforces the severity of the homophobia that she internalized. She could be of that moment (laughs) and writing about it critically and not using her platform you know, not taking that risk to use her platform. That said, yeah, I agree with you entirely. And that said, she, like Irene, you know, didn't write about her personal life. I mean, one of her greatest works, in my estimation, is um, Illness's Metaphor, which she was inspired to write because of her own experience of cancer, which she does not mention in that book. There's no first person (laughs) account in that book whatsoever. Yeah, it is fascinating. And and I think, you know, it's true. I've read I've read a lot more of Irene's work and I know more I feel like about the biography of Irene than I do of Susan, although I'm catching up with Susan. But there is very much a sense that even though they did not consciously write autobiographically, that we are able to, like Gwendolyn Alker would say, right, our colleague at NYU, like reverse engineer a sense of how their lives figured into their work by reading their work against the backdrop of their relationships. Somehow constellations start to form, even though when the works were written, there was not a conscious effort. In fact, perhaps the opposite. Yeah, that's that's a very tricky thing. And, you know, I tried to say something about that in the essay that I wrote about Sontag and Fornes, that certainly there was a, there was tension and strange power dynamics in that relationship that maybe is reflected in Sontag's novel, The Benefactor, that is a kind of picaresque um, featuring this one guy, you know, told from the point of view of this one guy who's trying to live this amoral life and involved in all kinds of sexual power games. Um, Tango Palace, you know, Irene's play. I mean, you could read aspects of their relationship into those works and it's kind of unavoidable. And there's, you know, in the minute you know about their relationship, um, it's impossible not to see Sontag everywhere in Irene's work. That said, both of them would object to that idea so strenuously, Sontag's essay against interpretation, you know, is all about not using um, external frames and an author's biography to explain their work, but to, you know, let the surface of the work and its form and content together, you know, produce its its meaning, its erotics of art, as she called for. So, yes, I see that, but I also... Um, I also run away from it. And I feel like there are a few places where I've come across in, in Sontag's diaries where she's kind of working through these ideas that end up being coming essays, right? That there was this awareness, and part of this maybe is getting into notes on camp, but this distancing of the author from the work is a conscious kind of strategy and a safeguard mm-hmm. that that betrays <laughs> that betrays the argument that she's trying to make, right? Even though she, it's a really interesting argument uh, in the abstract. She's also writing in a tradition of, you know, white male European tradition that places the critic in this sort of Olympian um, position of having no skin in any game, right? They're just the, you know, objective, 
uh, know-it-all observers. And um, that's very convenient for Sontag in the way you're describing. But she really identified with that kind of criticism. So let me ask you just sort of more openly um, in terms of your research, were there any any insights that were really meaningful to you or that really surprised you? Any findings that you were that you just did not expect going into the process? I mean, I hadn't read the Sontag Diaries um, before. So, you know, they're they're kind of shocking to read, um, especially, you know, if you admire Sontag as a as a critic, as I very much do, and um have been, you know, knocked over by the uh, assertiveness and the certainty with which she writes to just find that she's just this, you know, mass of quaking vulnerability. Um that that's pretty stunning. Um, I, I guess I, there were a couple of things I looked for, or I, I, I was curious about, you mentioned notes on camp. Um, I think one of the first things I said to Brian, um, when he asked if I wanted to do this was yes, sure. Sontag could not have written notes on camp without having known Irene. That just seemed apparent to me from the get go. Um, and it's not something that I could argue out at any length because it's a really short piece with so much to say. Um, but I think, you know, because they were together in those formative years, that's a lot of what I wanted to think about. And um, so I wouldn't say that there were huge surprises there. There were little surprises along the way that um, that built that idea. Yeah. And that that helped, helped me think about Irene's work, really, in a uh, in a fresher way than I had before. Yeah, I mean, Tango Palace in particular um, was the first play that Irene ever had produced. You know, I think what what has been interesting for me also in looking at their work and looking at their lives and how they're entangled more closely is that their works are greater than the sum of their parts. Like we can see their lives and their work and some of their works, we can see their relationship and something like Tango Palace. For me, it's hard to unsee it once you see it. <laughs> and at the same time, what I think made Irene such a great artist and Susan such a great critic is that there's so much more complexity to everything that they've written. And they are, their works are um, embedded in these traditions. I mean, a play like Tango Palace influences of Beckett and Kafka and Janae, um, and also notes on camp and Sontag and movies they saw together and things they did together, gifts they exchanged. I mean, um, it's all there. So it's not one or the other or like a single argument. There's such a layered complexity to a piece like that. The life really illuminates, but it's not the it's not the answer to it all. I think it Sontag doesn't describe these things in her. She doesn't describe going to things with Irene. As far as I know, she doesn't, uh, you know, the later diaries aren't published yet, and I didn't get to the archive. I don't know if she wrote about seeing Irene's plays later. She doesn't, even when she was writing about the theater for Partisan Review um, in the 60s, you know, she doesn't, it's not, I'm just assuming she went to that stuff with Irene. Um, I'm just assuming that when she fell in love with the music of Al Carmine's, it's because it was Irene taking her to Judson and that it was Irene taking her to Cafe Chino. Um, we don't have any duck, at least I haven't come across any documentation of that. We do know because there's an interview where um, Irene talks about going to happenings 
And um, and Sondag had a very important essay about happenings in 1962 before Notes on Camp. You know, so probably it's Irene who was taking her there. No, you know, no doubt they talked about what they, you know, what they were doing together because, you know, that's what couples do. There are some interesting kind of timestamps and stuff that we have that show us how long the like heartache and yearning mm-hmm. lasted. Right? It just. Yeah. It, it endured decade after decade. I, we, we don't really have a sense that that was the same for Susan, though, because we have, I think, much clearer sense of who her lovers were through the decades. I mean, she does she does chew over what um, the relationship in the diaries for a good two or three years after it's over. She's, you know, she's still like, I don't even know if I should say pining because sometimes she's, you know, it's just full of blame and recrimination for Irene in, in the diaries. But but um, till like 66, at least, you know, maybe three years after they've broken up, she's 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 still chewing on it. Um, but yeah, she does go on to have other lovers. Um, and and then later diaries haven't been published yet. So who knows? And that she yeah, she went on to have other relationships, other um, other lovers um, and partners. And as far as I know, Irene did not. I mean, I'm sure she had lovers, but she, you know, you know, from Michelle's beautiful film that she says at the end that that Susan was the love of her life. I mean, the other thing I'll say is Irene's one of the biggest flirts I ever met. That definitely comes through in uh, Harriet Summers Whirling's diaries, right? Abroad from yes, the 1980s. Yes. He's in a relationship with Irene. That definitely comes through. Yeah. Um, but so. I'd say even, you know, even when I knew her. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't change. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, which was you know some decades later, um, right. and even when I visited Irene, you know, in in the home um, here near Columbia, where her where you know Morgan Janess and others were so um, resolute and generous to bring her there, where she could be among community, um, even there when she didn't even recognize who I was anymore, she was she was still flirting, absolutely. Yeah, there is. So it's interesting that you say that because something I, I mean, this is just a feeling I have. I don't have anything to prove this, but there is a sense that I have gotten from studying their work and the time period of their their relationship sort of breakdown, right? So in the early 60s, this is all transpiring, that because Susan was I don't know if monogamous is even the right word, but she talks a lot about only being able to deal with the person right in front of her, right? Mm-hmm, and there's mm-hmm. a sense with Irene that we get, you know, from reading Harriet's diaries and also from reading Susan's, that Irene could be with you. She might have been able to stay with either of them longer if they could have accepted her on her terms, which is, I, which was much more plural. <laughs> and so I, I, there's something that I feel like happens once they've broken up, where they're still in communication through what they're writing. They're in communication, obviously, through Susan's novel, The Benefactor, and then the publication of Notes on Camp. And then she's making revisions to Notes on Camp in 1964, while she's still, like you said, pining for another two years until 66, or if pining is not the right word, like lamenting, processing that that whole experience. But Irene's next play after Tango Palace, which is, I think, reflective to some extent of of Mm -hmm. their breakdown. Her next play after that, The Successful Life of Three, feels like it's just, you know, it's there is some more sort of coding and the coded kind of exploring of themes that have personal resonance. Both of them wrote 
continuously about love triangles, both of them. Now, it is a trope in Western literature. They didn't invent it. But still, they're they're both a little obsessed. In terms of Tango Palace, production history of that is is a bit scant from the couple of productions that it had, right? And um, Mm -hmm. 63 and 64, like San Francisco, New York, Italy. Um, But one of the things that I saw that was kind of interesting is that there was a talkback after the New York production in 1964. And on the panel was... Susan. No kidding. Fascinating to think about, right? That like broken up, they're still entangled. Here is this distant critical voice. This play has nothing to do with me. I just am looking at this objectively as a work of art and I will speak on this panel and my heart is breaking. I mean, it's just, there's a lot of paradigms. Because I wrote at the end of my essay, I wrote a little bit about Sontag's um, preface to the 1980s um, volume, PHA volume of Mud, the Danube, Conduct of Life, and Sarita, um, the 80s masterpieces, as I think of that volume. I mean, just earth-shattering plays, each one of them. Um, and I remember, I, 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 my first job when I came to New York was at PHA. Um, in the early 80s. And I remember when Bonnie Marenka said, oh, yeah, we have a um, a preface from Sontag for Irene's plays. I had no idea that they'd been a couple at that time. Um, and I remember at the time thinking, oh, you know, this is so insightful about Irene's work and so on. And, you know, it, of course it is. It's Sontag after all. But when I read it over <laughs> thinking about their relationship, was kind of shocking how removed Sontag is, you know, even given what we said before about her lack of um, self-disclosure in her work, it's condescending, I think. I mean, it just has this really patronizing tone and these lines that make it sound like she's never even met Irene in her life. I mean, it just, it's astonishing that she could make that kind of separation. And again, it speaks to so many things that now sort of see ring true about her, her her sort of self-fashioning of herself as a critic, the tradition that like she she sort of saw herself operating within, the self-loathing, the homophobia, the you know, all of these things um uh, that she could write. I mean, I thought the same thing whenever I read it um the first time knowing about the history of their relationship. It is astonishing. We've we've talked about this a little bit, but I'd be curious just to see what your thoughts are in terms of assigning labels to these women. I mean, in their diaries, I feel like in Susan's diaries, she does a lot of listing of terms, slang, vocabulary, gay slang, straight slang. She has no mm-hmm. issues with the word homosexual, with the word lesbian. I feel like gay. I feel like queer. Yeah, she uses queer, but usually pejoratively, I think. So when we talk about them now, are there pitfalls that we can fall into when trying to um, identify them? Or, you know, what what is where does accuracy lie in this conversation (laughs) of discussing their biography and their how they would identify and how we, you know, with the vocabulary that we have available to us now? Yeah, I mean, those are such tricky questions that I mean, look, we could even have that question about whether to use accents on Yes. The I in Maria and the E in Fornes. Um, they're proper in, you know, in writing Spanish, they are proper. Spanish was her first language. She was Cuban. She didn't pretend not to be Cuban by any stretch of the imagination. She was, you know, she ran the Hispanic Playwrights Lab at Intar for many years. That mattered to her. Um, she did some writing about um 
Cuba or people from Cuba or, you know, refugees from Cuba, etc. She did not use those accents when she signed her own name. So my personal impulse is do what people, you know, call people what they want to be called, spell their names the way they <laughs> that they spelled them. Uh, Irene did call herself a lesbian publicly. I have no problem using that word. I mean, it's not a, you know, it's not my fight to have about the accents. It's, it's like, if I'm writing for a publication, that's their style decision, fine, whatever. But I think it's a very similar kind of question, I guess is what I'm saying. It seems more loaded, maybe for us as queer people, but um, for Latinx people, the accent question might be more loaded for, you know, for, for noting and recognizing and identifying with and claiming someone. So I don't know. I'm reluctant to worry too much about labels you know if it's relevant in talking about someone and her his or their work to say something about their identity then the facts can speak but i i don't know that i would lead off talking about irene by saying that she's a lesbian because that's not how she led off talking about herself Something I, that I hadn't planned to ask you about, but that I'm just thinking about that sort of feeds into thinking about the dynamics of the relationship had to do with sort of emerging identities or maybe already solidified identities within lesbian culture um, in terms of butch and femme roles. Mm -hmm. And there is an interesting kind of locking of horns that sometimes feels like even though San Susan sort of she's very aware of this. Right. And in the diaries, it comes through she's aware that these roles exist and that she feels sometimes put in a role or she consciously chooses to play a role. And, you know, she uses the the master slave sort of dialectic in different places. I wonder, did you, did you write about that all at all or think about that at all? Um, I did. I, I think I did quote something from Sontag's diary about um, conceiving of relationships as being, you know, master slave and her saying that if, if, um, that she, uh, you know, she finds herself um, more in the slave role or is more gratified in the slave role, I think she says. Um, and then and then she concludes, but you can't have you can't have a, a good relationship with those roles or a relationship of equals, you know, means doing away with those roles or something like that. She, she comes to some conclusion like that, um, whether that's that describes how she was with Irene uh, or what they came to or didn't come to. It's, it's really hard to know. I mean, it seems like in reading about Susan and relationships with partners after Irene, that there was a kind of, there was a butch kind of persona that, mm -hmm. that Susan had. So it's very interesting to see how she, you know, conceived of herself or at least writes about, you know, conceiving of herself in the late 50s, early 60s. Um. I think you can make a case insofar as, you know, first of all, just how she dressed and moved through the world, you know, with her boots and her slouchy sweaters and, you know, all of that and being just a tall, imposing presence. But one, I wanted to say something about this earlier, actually, you know, one who um, actually hated her body, um, wanted not to have a body. And Irene was the opposite. Irene was so, you know, her writing came out of her body. I mean, I think that's why, you know, when you asked me what's my first thought, I thought of her, you know, corporeally. Um, she she was very much in her body. And she would say things like, you know, when I 
when I write, I, when I'm really in the writing, I feel, you know, like the character's voice is coming out of my own body. Um, it was, you know, a very physical enterprise for her. Um, Susan was not so much in her body, though she seemed, you know, when you saw her just kind of sitting around and sort of holding court, um, she looked comfortable in that big gangly body of hers. I mean, I don't know how big she was. I'm, I'm only five two, so everybody seems big to me. Oh, yes. maybe, maybe not that big. I think also as a critic and you know, sort of what we were talking about before and in the tradition that she saw herself, she was, you know, to, to pull a phrase from 30 years ago or more, I think she was very male-identified intellectually. I don't know if that's the same thing as being butch, uh, like being a butch lesbian is the same thing as being a male-identified, you know, Western intellectual. I'm going to ask you one more thing then, which is I was recently um, alerted to a book that is called The Disappearing L, Erasure of Lesbian okay. Spaces and Culture, right? By Bonnie J. Morris, published in 2017. Um, and so I wonder if you think that there is something to this idea that someone like Sontag, you know, there. I think that there are people that perceive Sontag as someone who took on male, white male Western tradition of, of philosophy, sort of walked that path because it worked for her as opposed to self-identifying as a lesbian or doing anything that went, doing anything that went against the grain of that path. That was a, a much safer sort of trajectory. You could read it that way, but I think it was sincere. I mean, I think she really believed in it. Like, I don't think she chose a path because she thought, well, I have a better shot this way. You know, I, I think she really believed in that path. See, so that's the, there's a distinction there. Because mm -hmm. I think that there can be a sense that, that, you know, there were lesbians coming out, taking the risks, fighting the fight, not, not presenting, you know, like a straight woman sure. uh, by day. Um, and we're we're just being true to themselves and dealing with the the consequences that that went with that, right? On tag, you know, whether or not she really believed the philosophies for someone who is coming from that other point of view, it does feel like a cop out, like the safe path, like um, like a strategic career choice. Sure, I mean, you could you could say that, but I think it's. I think people are way more complicated than that. I think, you know, and as we were saying earlier, I think her own discomfort with herself was so profound that it was not, it was not just a, it was not a professional calculation or not merely a professional calculation. There was so much more going on there. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, reading in the diaries where we get a little bit of insight into what was happening with her divorce and mm -hmm. the risk her son and how her ex-husband, you know, Philip was using the her relationship with Irene with women as a potential uh threat to, you know, their son's well-being and as a as ammunition for why um she shouldn't have custody. Um I mean, she was she was feeling it in all sorts of ways. So, I think you're right that there is that there is it's much more complex than that. You know, like I said, by the 80s, I mean, come on, you know, but um, in those earlier years, and especially when the custody of her son, David, was at stake, and it was, it was very much at stake, um, I I personally can't fault her. I mean, I, I recently directed Jane Chambers' play last summer at Bluefish Cove. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, directing that and doing research for that, coming right on the heels of having just written about Irene and Susan, um, 
you know, that in that play, there is there is a character who is is sort of a mouthpiece for Jane Chambers, who had been fired from a, a soap opera that she wrote for whenever she was outed. So and then from, you know, once that happened, Jane Chambers was kind of like, well, I guess this is my path. And then wrote, you know, very openly lesbian plays. But it took something catalytic like that where it just sent her, you know, off the cliff. And there was, you know, to the point of no return. But there are, you know, plenty of examples of what happened um, when you came out in the in the sixties or seventies that um, remind us of all the reasons why Susan mm-hmm. took the stance that she took. You were going to talk a little bit about the last time that you saw Irene. Yeah, well, like I mentioned before, even you know, even when she was deep into her Alzheimer's, um, and you know, really inside herself or where wherever one is or who one is in in that state of that um, terrifying disease. You know, I would visit her from time to time, not nearly as often as I should have, um, sorry to say, but I did visit her a fair number of times. And there was always, there was a kind of cheery delight in her personality and um, and that never went away. You know, the, the, the things, she, she had such a curiosity about her. Uh, she was so open to people and to um, wonderment, you know. Um, it comes it comes out, uh, across beautifully in, in Michelle's film, too. So that even, you know, even things in that film that are so poignant and um, kind of upsetting to observe are not upsetting to her. Like that moment when when Michelle says, "Well, you, that, that that great moment when they're they're at her um, sister's, I guess it is in Florida, and she says, like, you know, I couldn't live here. It's very, it's a very nice place, pretending to be a city or something like that. But I couldn't live here because I have no theater community, and you can't you can't be a playwright if you can't produce your plays. Um, it's like you know being a chef with nobody eating your food. And Michelle says, well, you know, you haven't written anything in a few years, and and Irene is like surprised." Um, by that. Um, but she doesn't, she, you know, whenever I watch the film, my heart just sinks at that moment, right? Both for just what we lost, the, the work we may have lost, more brilliant work of Irene's and how maybe she would have felt um, to realize that her life's work is no longer something that she's producing. Um, but that's not how she reacts. She has this kind of curiosity and which is, huh, how interesting. And so um, that's a quality that I still felt in her when I would go visit her um, in in the home um, over on Amsterdam Avenue. Uh, she didn't recognize me, but she was happy to see me. Like you know, anybody who walked in was like, "Who are you?" you know, so nice you're here. And even when she wasn't really speaking, you know, she would grip your hands. Um, she would tap. If you played music, she would tap along to it. You know, there were photographs of her productions all around her bed with a saint. Um, sorry, I forget which saint because you know, don't ask a Jew to identify the saints. You know, there was just a kind of a kind of um, cheerfulness. At her core, um, it doesn't mean that she was, you know, naive or didn't take in things that were, you know, terrible or respond to them or, you know, suffer <laughs> or agonize as as she sometimes did. Um, but there was just a deep spirit of curiosity and openness 
to her that I um, maybe I was projecting, but I think I felt even when I visited her and, you know, didn't know if she was still there. I think you're absolutely right. And I think that that comes through in her work, even if even for someone that never knew Irene, that there it would take someone who was able to hold joy and pain and all of these sort of antithetical feelings that are part of the human condition um, intention, I feel like that comes through her work from the beginning to end. And I have to say, you know, and for me and trying to figure out how I was going to write about um, lesbianism and Irene's life and work, that is what my chapter is on, which involved reading all of Irene's plays and trying to figure out where lesbianism or queerness exists that we don't realize it exists, you know, outside of the obvious places like Fefu. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, and for me, um, what was really useful was Sarah Ahmed's The Promise of Happiness and this idea mm-hmm. of queer joy. It's there, she's wrestling with this idea of happiness in the face of obstacles in all the plays that engage lesbianism or queerness, right up into the very end in her last work on Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas and Pablo Picasso, another triangle piece. Although Mm -hmm. more characters start to come into that work because it was very sprawling and obviously unfinished. I felt a lot better when I arrived at that place in my own research and writing because it felt very true to um, the personality and the spirit and the energy and the heart and soul of Irene. That She had endured plenty of um, hardship in her life, uh, you know, coming to to the U.S. from Cuba at 15, loss of family members, her father, everything else. Um, being a queer person navigating this world at a time that was in some ways less friendly than this moment. And in some ways we're seeing a, a return to the past. But there was always this this joy that would just rise up in the in the midst of of tragedy, whether it's, you know, an outbreak of song or dance there throughout her whole body of work. So I think what what you said is is spot on and really meaningful. Fornes' adaptation of Calderon de la Barca's Life is a Dream, directed by Stevie Walker-Webb at Baltimore Center Stage, runs from May 4th to 21st. To learn more about the production, visit centerstage.org.